Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, July the 24th. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on malaria, which is the subject of a special report and also a linked short editorial. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Yudani Samrasekra. Welcome, Yudani. Hi, Richard. Delighted you're here. And you've recently been out on a field trip to Western Cambodia looking at this very specific issue relating to malaria in that region. Can you just briefly summarise what the issue is here? I went out at the end of May to Western Cambodia and I was looking at the um, early detection of resistance to the frontline anti-malarial, which is artemisinin or artesanate, which is used in Western Cambodia. So malarial parasites are becoming more tolerant to this drug, which means that the treatment is still effective, but it's just taking longer to work. Indeed, and people may recall some reporting by the BBC at the time of that field trip, Yudani. Obviously, we want everyone to read the special report, but just briefly, can you tell us what politically is being done to contain resistance here in this West Cambodian setting? A great deal is being done. The governments of Thailand and Cambodia, with the help of WHO and, and various non-governmental organisations, are really um, stepping up their malaria control efforts in the region to try and contain these resistant parasites. For example, they're trying to reach a really high level of coverage with long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets in areas with suspected resistance. And they're also trying to target the large migrant population in the region because this is the group that will inadvertently spread resistant parasites to other parts of the country and possibly abroad if they don't get access to prevention and treatment interventions. And clinically, as, as you've already touched on, the issue is, is to do with the amount of time it takes the human body to clear the clearance of the plasmodium falciparum parasites takes a lot longer so the evidence seems to be. Do we know why that is? What's happening is that artemisinin or artesanate as it's used in Western Cambodia is a really fast acting and effective drug and it, it usually takes about two days to clear a patient's parasites and what researchers are, are seeing now is that it's taking a lot longer so three and sometimes even four or five days and this means that the parasites are becoming tolerant or resistant to the drug, which basically means that they've mutated. You mentioned in the special report one of the issues is to do with the fact that the private sector are involved in the manufacture and and distribution of the drugs. Can you just briefly comment on that? The private sector is um, huge in Cambodia. Around 70% of people go to the private sector for their medicines. The problem with this is the quality of drugs is really variable. Southeast Asia has a huge problem with counterfeit drugs, but also the private sector quite often sells um, artemisinin monotherapy. This increases resistance because it kills off um, sensitive parasites, parasites that are still sensitive to artemisinin, and it leaves the resistant ones to um, uh, multiply. Well, it's a fascinating and worrying piece, but I do urge everyone to read the special report this week about malaria in Western Cambodia. And I see linked to the special report is a short editorial. Now, of course, all Lancet editorials are anonymous. I've got a feeling you may have had a hand in this (laughs) one. What's the editorial uh, line, if you like, that that we're taking here? We're basically saying that um, political momentum 
system has been gathering for malaria elimination over the past couple of years, there are many obstacles to achieving this goal, but one of them is is funding as ever. And we mention a report that has come out quite recently, which suggests that around $5.5 billion is needed yearly from now until 2020 to eliminate malaria, we're kind of really falling short of this goal. What we're saying in the editorial is that we've actually made quite a few gains with malaria since the late 1990s. We need to keep our efforts up and keep the political momentum to um, eliminate malaria. I think I read the words, um, we've got to, to weather the storm. Is that yeah, right? definitely. And and the reason why um, malaria funding is probably falling short is the um, financial crisis. Even reports of uh, emerging resistance to artemisinin might um, make political leaders take elimination off the agenda, but too much has been gained to go backwards now. So they should really keep their commitments that they've made. Many thanks, Yudani, for joining me this week. And let's cross to Cape Town in South Africa and hear from another colleague, Peter Hayward, who is at the International AIDS Society meeting there. Hello, this is Peter Hayward, reporting from the 5th International AIDS Society Conference on Pathogenesis, Treatment and Prevention, being held in Cape Town from July the 19th to the 22nd. The conference this year includes basic science, clinical science and biomedical prevention, but these are joined for the first time this year by the fourth theme of operational research in recognition of the importance of economic, social and government forces in ensuring that the insight generated by the other three themes can be implemented. The conference kicked off officially on Sunday night with the opening plenary session, including an address by Deputy President Motlanthi. Although he did not stick around for the whole session due to other commitments, the presence of the South African Deputy President is a strong sign of support from the nation's new government for the role of science in the fight against HIV and AIDS. This is particularly significant at this meeting in Cape Town since it marks a substantial change from the year 2000 when the World AIDS meeting took place in Durban at a time when South Africa's government fundamentally doubted the scientific understanding of HIV and AIDS. The economic downturn looms large here at the conference, if not always in the titles of sessions or abstracts, then in the speeches given. A major concern is how can governments and non-governmental organisations, health systems and donor agencies continue to work towards the promise of universal access to antiretroviral treatment and improved care for HIV if money available to healthcare becomes restricted. There seems to be a sense that already international organisations are starting to look to global health as a potential source of savings. Plenary session speakers on Sunday and Monday noted that at the G8 meeting in Italy earlier this year, world leaders were silent on the issues of universal access to antiretroviral treatment. Julio Montana described the snubbing as criminal negligence and Stephen Lewis said that the G8 leadership was showing extraordinary delinquency. These strong words are hoped to inspire scientists and campaigners to action over the course of the meeting to show world leaders and international organisations that failure to deliver on health promises related to HIV will not only be a breach of agreement and infringement of human rights, but also will damage the world economically and socially in the long run. Several sessions over the course of the conference are set to show how programmes initiated to tackle HIV have led to improvements in health systems both nationally and internationally. In a plenary session on Monday, the Executive Director of the Global Fund used Lesotho as an example. In 2002 and 2003, Lesotho asked the fund for money to treat 3,000 patients with antiretrovirals. By 2008, they were asking for enough money to treat 55,000 patients, 65% of the people living with HIV in the country. Such an increase was only possible as a health system strengthened by money to fight AIDS reached more people. Tuberculosis is another major topic at the conference. With the many people who now receive treatment for tuberculosis through programmes initiated to manage HIV, another example of the benefits to health systems and global health. 
Although HIV faces stiff competition in the climate of respiratory pandemics and global downturns, it is clear that the conference organisers and the participants are keen to reinforce not only the urgency of the HIV pandemic and the benefits that treatment of HIV has for health systems and the ability to treat a wide range of diseases, but also, and because of this, the benefits that tackling HIV has for the world economically and socially. I'll be back with further thoughts from the conference over the next couple of days, and I hope that you will be able to listen in. Hello, and welcome back to Cape Town. This is Peter Hayward, again reporting from the International AIDS Society Conference on Pathogenesis, Treatment and Prevention. Funding for HIV research and programmes has remained one of the main topics of this conference. When Eric Goosby, the newly appointed chairman of PEPFAR, and Anthony Fauci, director of NIAID, addressed the conference on Monday evening, both mentioned that the CD4 thresholds for starting treatment should be revised to start therapy earlier. But whereas starting treatment earlier might sound more costly, the fewer complications might actually save money in the long run. It's a toss-up between treating people aggressively for a shorter time and treating people less aggressively for a longer time. But the question of early or late treatment is something of a moot point in Africa, where so-called universal access rarely means more than 50% of people being treated with first-line therapy, and viral load or even CD4 monitoring is not available to the vast majority of people due to the lack of laboratory services. The development of antiretroviral treatment in Africa, or DART study, looked at the need for laboratory monitoring for treatment success. Using the measure of survival, researchers compared laboratory monitoring with clinical monitoring to assess the response to treatment. During the first two years of the DART study, survival did not differ between the two groups. These findings suggest that treatment can be instigated without costly laboratory monitoring, and that where cost is an issue, the expense of providing laboratory services might be better deployed elsewhere. Prevention has become a point of debate in the meeting since Reuben Granick reported a model showing that extensive antiretroviral treatment could reduce transmission to below 1% by lowering the viral load of infected people. But the model would require access to second and third line treatments in the long run. And Ronald Gray, who participated in the study of male circumcision at Rakai, Uganda, part of which was recently published in The Lancet, suggests that other approaches to prevention are needed. Gray reported how the Phase 3 prevention trials to date involving vaccines, pre-exposure prophylaxis, sexually transmitted disease control and microbicides have proven disappointing. Only four of 29 trials proving effective, three of which were of male circumcision. Gray suggests that candidate interventions should be screened more thoroughly before they are put into expensive trials. Support for the role of male circumcision as prevention has grown at the conference, with reduced transmission in men who have sex with men in the Soweto men's study reported during a session on the topic. More results from the Rakai study showed that women are in fact more keen than their partners for men to be circumcised. Besides the obvious reasons, this finding is perhaps related to the fact that over 35% of women reported improved sexual satisfaction after the operation. Other topics on Tuesday's agenda included the decision that infected mothers must make between breastfeeding and the risk of passing on HIV, or not breastfeeding, and not passing on the immune-boosting properties of breast milk. Of course, the decision is not that simple, and economic pressures and stigma may mean that women do not have the option. To help prevent passing on HIV, antiretroviral therapy, when available, lowers the chances of transmission through breastfeeding. Another discussion looked at how access to therapy could prevent transmission between injecting drug users, all findings that could help support Greenwich's model of antiretroviral treatment for prevention. So it's an overriding message then, that access to medicines is essential not only for treatment, but also for prevention. And during Tuesday, the human rights imperative to provide real universal access to treatment was reiterated, and at the end of the day was marked by a protest from the group ACT UP Paris, a French campaigning organisation who support access to medicines for all. In a press conference by the group, a French man and Nigerian woman 
both living with HIV, spoke about the injustice of the former having access to laboratory monitoring and second and third line treatment, and the latter having access only to first line treatment. The Nigerian woman, a mother, said that governments and donor agencies would rather build orphanages than pay for treatment. Many thanks for listening, and I'll be back with a final update from the conference tomorrow. With one of the most developed economies in sub-Saharan Africa, but experiencing one of the highest burdens of HIV, it was appropriate to reflect on the situation of HIV in South Africa as the conference drew to a close. A great number of the studies reported at this conference have come from sites in South Africa. KwaZulu-Natal, Tugelaferi, Worcester and Kyalicha are names of study sites and regions and clinics that have cropped up time and again. Due to innovative research and rollout programs, patients have received treatment for HIV, gaining access to much-needed drugs as part of trials, and have begun to receive integrated care for tuberculosis and other illnesses that go hand-in-hand hand with the regional AIDS pandemic at these sites. I took a trip out to the MSF coordinated project in the township of Kyalicha, where 500,000 people live in poverty just half an hour from Cape Town. The prevalence of HIV in Kyalicha is 32%. 70% of the patients also have tuberculosis. The case finding for tuberculosis is 1,600 cases per 100,000 people per year, and people live at a population density of 6,000 per square kilometre. Since starting a pilot trial of HIV care in 2001, annual enrolment for treatment at MSF centres has risen from just over 100 to 2,000. The Kyle Eacher B Clinic has opened to treat patients with HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis together, recognising that in South Africa, the two illnesses go hand in hand. The MSF project now offers decentralised care for tuberculosis throughout the township and is even open to clinic dedicated to treatment of multidrug resistant tuberculosis, enabling the sickest patients to stay near their families while they receive treatment. The effect that HIV services have had in enabling tuberculosis treatment and monitoring of the spread of the drug resistant tuberculosis has been highlighted time and again. And in the closing sessions of the conference, the benefits that HIV treatment rollout has had for improving health generally in sub-Saharan Africa has been reiterated. People receiving treatment for HIV are less likely to develop malaria. Where HIV services are set up, contact with health workers enables them to access care for other STIs, tuberculosis and malnutrition. The infrastructure developed for HIV treatment trials can now be used to treat patients for other diseases and vaccine trials for tuberculosis are due to start in South Africa in the coming year. The HIV programmes have also just begun to give voice to sex workers, men who have sex with men, and injecting drug users, who are often overlooked or openly discriminated against in the region. And the role of gender and violence in determining the risk of HIV has also been recognised. In the waiting room at Kyalicha, the great majority of people awaiting antiretroviral treatment were women, and this is a situation common across the region. At the close of the conference, we reflect on the many successes that have been reported, of the good that systems implemented for HIV care have done for other diseases, and the progress made towards integrating health through HIV programmes. Grassa Michelle, academic, women's rights activist, and Nelson Mandela's third wife, gave an inspiring speech, reiterating the need for all campaigners everywhere to hold their governments and global leadership to their promises of universal access and donations to the Global Fund and other health bodies, and to hold them to account where they fail on these promises. For every failure to do so can be measured in the number of human lives lost. As writ large on the screen during the presentation by Rilake Odetoy Inbo at the close of the meeting, HIV is still an emergency and we need a sustained response. Many thanks to Peter Hayward and to Yudani Samrasekara for contributing to this week's podcast and thank you all for listening. See you next week.